In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP1 and SIP2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through IMDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Melissa, Caleb, and myself, Bridger, are here in the studio today to start our conversation on memory reconsolidation. I'm so jacked. I was, I was, I was hoping that you would all jump in. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like a feelings. moment where you you like want to be so excited, but then you're like, oh yeah, if I talk too loud, I'm I'm going to scream in someone's ear. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be listening in the future, and I don't want to do that, but I. Let it be known that be- beneath this that well-regulated is... <laughs> and inhibited vocal tone, that energy's in is there. A lot of energy, yeah. like a full-on scream of enthusiasm. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This like forms the bedrock of, I don't know, like probably even why therapy works and it, like why you're right. just gonna start with that. Well, because that that's that's but that's <laughs> but the excitement. That's full yeah. like, right there. Yeah. So so I I'm curious if we could start with a question. Do you guys, and now you guys had a very different graduate school experience than I did, but I think it's still interesting to ask this question. When you think about yourself going through grad school, if you had encountered this article, 
what do you think your reaction would have been? Like, are you talking about it being a part of the curriculum? Yeah. If a professor had said, this is important, you should read this. I think if my professor would have started like a theories of change class mm-hmm. with like, this is the bedrock of any like long lasting change. Now go see this and all of these therapies that we exactly. talk about. Yes. I think that would have been so sick. Mm-hmm. Like I would have really enjoyed that. I would have probably eaten it up. And I say that like somewhat like wondering if I'm like giving it too much credit, but like, I, I don't think I am. I think these concepts are like that, like open to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they're not, this isn't like some, for the fact that of what we're talking about, like changing neural memory circuits, mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple concept to yeah. understand. And then the formulation of how the sequencing of how this actually happens, like it, it doesn't take a ton of like language acquisition or mm-hmm. just like prior knowledge. It's pretty plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And so like as a student, I think I would have been so jacked on the practicality of it the the foundational aspect of what it is and then to like see all these therapies trying to find their flavor of why how do i like tap into this natural mechanism of our brain would have been so sick yeah yeah bridger what about you i think for me like the space that my mind entered after you asked that question was that this is something that if it's mentioned i feel like it would be mentioned somewhere in like the behaviorists or just like learning mm, um, yeah. learning theories learning sure. theorists yeah. yeah and that it would kind of be couched there like that it mm. wouldn't be seen for the therapeutic change power that it actually has it would yeah. be seen too narrowly right that it would be this is the way in which we learn behavior mm-hmm. and thus you know build our sense of self over time um, even some of the language like consolidation mm-hmm. is there for the self psychology and the ego psychology so to me um yeah, I think just as you answered, Caleb, the idea that if this could be in a therapeutic exchange class, which if that could even be a thing as at like <laughs> at <Yeah>. all, <laughs> that yeah. here's theories of change and, and how other therapies kind of interact with those theories and mm-hmm. utilize them or choose to utilize alternative theories, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, but I feel like so much of it is already geared at the practice of you know, here's how you start to interact with somebody in the room that memory reconsolidation assumes a fair amount of knowledge about interacting with somebody in Mm -hmm. a therapeutic way. It's true. Not being overly um, prescriptive or protocolized, but actually invitational. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's even the way that the body has to actually step into it. You can't demand that reconsolidation take place. So Mm -hmm. in a way, I think it's, it's also while being so simple and approachable, it is somewhat um, like humbly advanced. Mm -hmm. Like it is something that it it takes quite a bit of skill Mm -hmm. to do this work Mm -hmm. with a understanding of why somebody may not want to enter the space. Right. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Those are just some raw thoughts Mm -hmm. though. I think the, the reason why I asked that question is because when I was reading the first few pages of the article, 
I immediately thought about my early, like early, early classes. In fact, it might have even been in undergrad, but by then I knew, you know, I was going to go into grad school, etc. And I took a class called Motivation and Emotion. And I went into the class so excited with high expectations of what we were going to discuss and was just profoundly disappointed <laughs> yeah, that by like what that curriculum was. An amazing class. If I saw, oh, that, if I saw that course I'd be title, like, I'm I would taking I'd take that. it 100%. Yeah, Absolutely. I'll, sign up. I'll pay extra to sign up early. And it ended up being uh, personality tests and it ended up being um, descriptive of emotional states and just so many things that was not what it was supposed to be. And when I read this, I thought, oh, this should have been the curriculum Mm. for that class. Mm. And this would have felt like a trajectory setting article that sort of sets up a clinician or anybody interested in uh, a healing profession um, to be able to evaluate a lot of other things that we're going to encounter down the road. Like, how do we know if we're actually doing something that matters? How do we know if this modality is actually doing something that's going to get us the results that we want? How do we um, acquire skills and focus on skills and attend to the skills that really matter as opposed to getting distracted by a lot of things that maybe don't matter nearly as much? And we kind of poke a lot of fun at some of the things that are overly focused on in grad schools (laughs) Mm. Um, because I think we all have this sensation of if it's not doing something connected to the process of memory reconsolidation, then what are we doing? Like why, Mm. why are we investing time and energy and resources, our clients' time and energy and resources in doing activities that are really not going to achieve this uh, when we have the option to do things that can achieve this. And uh, so, yeah, I think when I initially re-encountered this article, it was with that feeling of, oh my gosh, I wish this was like 101. Mm-hmm. Like that, to me, it feels so elementary, not in the sense of um, basic and not interesting, but in the sense of foundational and setting you up to understand so many other things that are relevant to the work that we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if we just jump in? So we're yeah. looking at an article um, called A Primer on Memory Reconsolidation and its Psychotherapeutic Use as a Core Process of Profound Change by Ecker, Tisich, and Hewley. Mm-hmm. It's from actually the book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, Eliminating Symptoms at the root, Roots and Using Memory Reconsolidation. Um, the By reason Rutledge again. Yeah, another Rutledge, which is a favorite. Oh, mm-hmm. if, easily. Yeah. yeah. Expensive, but worth it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They are proud of their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very proud of their stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice I, way like, of I do have some like concerns about paper like quality, but mm-hmm. the content of what Rutledge is putting out is just unmatched. Um, but one of the things we talked about doing is we're going to use this article not so much as like we're going to go step by step through it, but as a launching pad for, uh, and really that's what the article was designed to do is just to prime, prime you for what the heck is this thing called memory reconsolidation? Why is it actually one of the most like underrated revolutionary concepts in neuroscience? Yeah. (laughs) Like honestly, that's very true. Yeah. 
And then and why is it so underrated? Well, I, well, I'll, we'll come back to that. Keep going. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cause we haven't caught up to it yet. Um, but then, uh, yeah, using this to sort of launch and, and we'll just talk about basic concepts of memory reconsolidation. And then we're going to talk about memory reconsolidation understood and misunderstood next week. And then, um, we really want to bring this home and kind of give some opportunity for personal processing this, mm-hmm. our experiences of memory reconsolidation, because this is like so foundational to our model, somatic integration and processing. I mean, it's so foundational to like every, like therapy that is actually instigating deep change. Yeah. And I think if you went across the clinicians that are kind of attracted to beyond healing and, and seek to practice in this way, and you said of the tenets of, of memory reconsolidation, um, how much do you agree with these ideas? Hmm. You would see a very high degree yeah. of yeah. just kind of, yep, I, I'm right there with you. Oh, yeah. There's what, deep resonance with these Yes, concepts. absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's exposed by something um, or just potentially highlighted by the concept which the article starts with of like, why is depression so tricky? Mm. Like, why is that? Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons, not to jump in too far, but one of the reasons that, Melissa, you begged of like, why is it so underrated? Yeah. Because that's a, that's a scary question for psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Why is depression so hard to treat? Mm-hmm. Anxiety, I think, is similar, but like, mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. What's really going on? And they they just like unashamedly say, um, depression that is really the deeply forlorn state of having learned from cold, critical parents that one is unworthy of love. Yes. And then it just goes on. Yeah. <laughs> like it explains, just going to drop that nugget right it, there. It, it explains <laughs> the atmosphere by which a person learns the depressed mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And then uses that as the template by which to build the rest of their consciousness. Yeah. So, so that paragraph that you just said, there's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious, do we want to sort of unpack some of the the key elements of what you just highlighted? For instance, the concept of emotional learning. Yeah. Because that is sort of where all of this begins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think we all sort of immediately have an idea of what emotional learning means. But in the framework of memory reconsolidation, it has a very specific and very important way of understanding Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, my mind goes to Poncep's yeah. uh, three processes. So um, is that okay to start there? Well, of course. Because to me, when we start talking about emotional learning, that word emotional tethered to learning. Yeah, with the hyphen. Yeah. Like emotional learning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That like feels, they don't reference him, but it feels like an homage to Poncep. Right there. Um, because Poncep has an idea that is not his own, but he like really crafts it more and more in his affective neuroscience science research of you have three levels of processing in the brain. You have primary processes, which are direct state controls, which includes your seven affective core circuits, which are um, emotionally emotional affect um, states. Then you have homeostatic states and then you have sensory states. The second level is your kind of, uh, it's called secondary processes, but the secondary processes over time and through development inform the expression of your primary processes. So if you have a homeostatic need 
and you engage an affect state to procure that homeostatic need, um, your secondary processes will then inform what are like all the templates for how we have gotten this need met before and what works now, what do we anticipate will work, what, yeah. what's kind of our learning as far as how to get our needs met. And then the tertiary processes are these processes that ref are reflective, a deeper, so you're thinking higher cortical levels of information processing that are analyzing the secondary processes and then ruminating on the primary processes to make sure that everything's functioning as efficiently as possible. Mm. So then when we're talking about emotional learning, mm. really what I imagine us talking about is the secondary processes in which we've, we're, we're uh, contorting and twisting and cutting and splicing our primary affects in our world mm. to get our needs met. Yeah. Just to really zoom in on this idea of like templates, because I think that that's a great way of looking at it, of even if you just think about as, or even not just necessarily yourself, but thinking about like a person, a small child who has uh, a need like for a snack or something like that. Um, the process by which they go about getting that snack uh, is, is largely dependent on the relational environment that they're a part of. Yeah. So that means that there is a recognition of internal stimuli. Mm -hmm. So the child says, I'm hungry. Maybe not doesn't say that, but it feels that. So it starts mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. engage the behaviors to go about getting that snack. It then has to contemplate uh, behavioral activation. Do I engage a person or do I just go try to find it myself? Mm -hmm. How do I go about this? And this, these processes are subcortical. Yes. So they're deep in the brain. They're not explicit processes. Right. These are in that secondary primary level mm -hmm. of what we were talking about. So then, remember, we're working on the idea of building a template here. So we have the felt recognition of stimuli, sensation, which is hunger. Then the contemplation of behavioral activation, which is potentially going to engage another person or just carry it out myself. Then behavior activation goes through. We then either succeed or do not succeed in meeting the kind of uh, necessity for that behavioral activation. And if there was another kind of uh, process unfolding, it's the one of recognizing the appraisal mm -hmm. of that entire process. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of uh, very simply in language, but consider whether or not that behavior, that behavioral activation was successful mm -hmm. yeah. in getting that need met. Yeah. And lots can go wrong. different ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe to put it in language that listeners are somewhat familiar with in the idea of um, the three selves, mm. you have the sensing self that is sort of those primary processes, but the primary processes get tricky because it, the primary processes are also like a part of the behaving right. self um, because it's intentions and action. In action. Yeah. But um in, in that process of the sensing and behaving self working together to guide the ship to certain ports and across certain seas, there is that creation of the maps. Mm -hmm. And it's in the creation of those maps that emotional learnings are made. Right. Mm -hmm. That the narrating as, like, self is using. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To then like anticipate and further perpetuate the usage of those maps or the like scribbling on top of what's there yeah um whether or not that narrating self is actually a captain that's respected or not yeah yeah um 
and that has a whole slew of neurobiology yeah. there. But so call back to our yes, yeah, tail <laughs> through cells tail episode. Through cells. But that that idea that we're we don't like we our brain is forming information subcortically, subconsciously, yeah, um, and we're acting in a way based on our emotional learnings. Mm -hmm. And so then also think of Bruce Perry of like neurosequential firing. Mm -hmm. When I'm sensing something, those sensations are being integrated and formed through primary processes, but then are going to be bounced off of templates within the secondary processes. Yeah. And so this is like to answer that question of why depression can be so tricky is we can we can try to tap into the tertiary processes of beliefs about things and what's really happening, but never connect it neurosequentially and neurobiologically to those primary and secondary mm-hmm. processes that are informing this ruminative mm-hmm. depressive state yeah. mm-hmm. and this template to see the world. They say it, um, uh, a non-conscious but fear generating ex- expectation mm-hmm. that had wordlessly defined the world of people. That's right. And, I feel like a phrase that people might have heard that is really connected to this idea is the idea of uh, implicit internal models or internal working models Mm. that when we experience something that is emotional learning to us, that is how those implicit models get created. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, it's, it's not a perfect one-to-one, but it is pretty close to that, that the more emotionally laden an experience is, the more robust those internal working models are uh, going to become. Um, And that is such a, a survival mechanism for us, you know, while, yeah, there's a lot of problematic elements to that later on in life at the time of its creation it was serving a very important biological and evolutionary purpose of helping us navigate our environment to the best of our ability and get the resource that that we needed but they also make a super important point which i think goes back to your comment bridger about why is depression so tricky to treat which is those implicit working models that we house are implicit, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. means we are not explicitly aware of them. We rarely remember when they got created. We're rarely even aware that they got created. Most people don't walk around with awareness of, oh, I wonder what internal working model I'm referencing right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not a way that we are taught to think about our own body and think about the way that we as an organism and as a mammal navigate our life. Although I think that would be really useful if we taught kids about that so that they could know that their whole life. I might try that with my kid and see how weird I make her. Um But I do think that having awareness that these things are buried incredibly deeply and then they're insulated by a lot of story around why those original experiences shouldn't matter, why they should be irrelevant at this point in our life. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like we block ourselves from getting access to the very material that holds the key to unlocking our, our current question. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is so much of what I think we encounter in therapy and why, uh, a lot of the cases that we would consider really complex or difficult to treat, or there's a lot of resistance or barriers. It has to do with how implicit and buried those original experiences and internal working models really are for the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm just thinking about the, just the unapologetics facing that this article takes Mm -hmm. of that issue yes and of how it speaks to well yeah depression of course depression is hard to treat Mm -hmm. of course these 
really depression and anxiety being just these socially constructed ideas of here's these consistent um, affect regulation issues across time in this Mm -hmm. population. We call them depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, But those things are just emergent from naturally uh, a brain that has been shaped over time in relationship. So yeah, you're going to, I mean, it's actually in this article calls them, um, that they are survival positive. I was just yes. going to say. It's such a good yeah. phrase. I yeah. highlighted survival that as well. positive. Yeah. Like that's just the way that the brain is going to develop and is then naturally going to be averse to mm-hmm. any alternative mm-hmm. narratives or, you know, considerations of the way a situation might play out because to contemplate that difference would be to evolutionarily at least put yourself in harm's way. Exactly. Yeah. And that speaks to why these memories are so durable. Yeah. You know, why are they so impervious indelible to change? Indelible. Is the, yeah, the, I the phrase that. I love that. And the writers of this article are also very good writers, which I appreciate, especially mm-hmm. in academic writing. The phrase that they used are unfading across the decades. Mm-hmm. Isn't that good? It's, it's so evocative and so accurate that the, the vividness and the intensity of those moments um, stay fresh in our body and in our nervous system decades afterwards um, because they are survival positive. And anything that our nervous system deems necessary for our continued survival, we're going to keep it fresh. We're going to keep it alive and awake, and we're going to be referencing it constantly. So even though it does produce a kind of suffering, our body still prioritizes survival above all else. And that's what creates that, uh, yeah, that insulation around those memories from being easily changed or manipulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking of like a sentence that I realized was just a callback to like almost every episode we've done, which is just like in what you're saying, Melissa, you can see, <clears throat> excuse me, the like the scaffolded mind and Bromberg's mm. idea of like the survival of the self. Mm. Yes. So survival positive aspects of the self yes. where like when you're talking about severe depression, treatment resistant depression, mm-hmm. That is like going, Mm -hmm. yeah, well, yeah, but um, and specifically like depression of thinking like suicidal tendencies Mm -hmm. of thinking like how suicide makes sense to the scaffolded mind according to these Mm -hmm. early implicit emotional learnings Mm -hmm. and how like utterly gut-wrenching that is, but also it makes sense. Yes. And then the treatment becomes clearer. Yes. Because you found why, why does this make sense? Yeah. And I love this mm-hmm. two sentences here. Relapses are almost inevitable, yeah. particularly in new or stressful situations. No wonder therapists and clients often feel they're struggling against some unrelenting, but invisible force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's and we're, just neurobiology. Yeah. And, and I think like that, that is a piece that produces kind of a frustrated response in me of why don't we... I mean, we do, because here we are talking about it. I was going to say, why don't we talk about it more? Well, we do. <laughs> um, but there, there is such a, a lack of awareness and discussion around this when it is clearly the neurobiological foundation of what we're doing as therapists. So I know that we can't answer this question in reality, but I am very curious why you guys think there has been resistance to adopting this as a foundation of understanding what we do as therapists. Part of... Part of that I do I I will say like to give some like humble like I'm I'm still for you field of research 
<laughs> is that this was such a like explosive concept that then for the research to come behind it and find the nuances and retest mm. it and mm -hmm. to like find, you know, is, is what we're saying is happening in reconsolidated memory really what's happening? Right. Like the time it took to do that. Like right. I, I get that it took some time mm -hmm. and, and really memory reconsolidation. What was it? 97 was some of the first yeah. like, research to come uh, out uh, about yeah, it. Understandings yeah. of it. So then you think of 10 years. What is new? But yeah. then, yeah, you think of like roughly 10 years for that research to like come around to mm -hmm. really kind of be grounded. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking like the field of therapeutics is behind in research, like Probably understanding. 30 yeah. years. Yeah. Like, is it, is that the number? That's one of that I'm familiar with. Like, That's crazy. To yeah. But why? I'm very curious. And then maybe this is a whole other Well, discussion. to me, from a research <laughs> standpoint, like from the various um just kind of discussions i've been privy to and and have been able to engage in with people across the field of counseling especially it's because the old adage of like change is not a good thing like the feel within the field of yes we want to continue researching but ultimately change that's that's actually counterintuitive to the empirical process by which we're trying to determine evidence based therapies like just the idea of I'm I'm just like talking no, from I just don't. No, I I'm I, not the only these are reason I believe. No, the okay. only reason I smiled was because Melissa gave like just a long exhale and I felt every second of that. <laughs> yeah. And I I resonate with that so yeah. deeply. I don't even believe in evidence-based therapies. Like yeah. that's just me no, yeah. saying that. But <laughs> that's but just me saying that. That's the, a big thing to say. <laughs> the field itself is yeah. dependent on that classification. And that means that we have to have long sustained efforts researching a consistent methodology. Yep. And so that means that we are averse to investing large amounts of resources in these quote unquote new promising uh, experimental psychotherapies. Yeah. Which that is annoying as heck to it's me. It's not my belief. That's what the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like it, it would be interesting if you could psychoanalyze the counseling profession as a whole, because like the, the anxiety that then motivates this need for stability yes could be found and resistance to change yeah. i think stability needs yeah. an asterisk yes next yeah, yeah, to yeah, say yeah. that yeah. yeah um could be found in something like i mean this is like when we started this episode when we were talking about like what it would be like to experience this in grad school like i i imagined so much anxiety like releasing mm -hmm. in the spaces of like clinicians being like well what the heck am i going to do yes. and like what is this all about and what like, is the point like if i yeah. say i like freud's theories like am i automatically shunned and then right. i have to prove myself which is kind of like if we're being honest like in a way you have to prove yourself and why your therapy works right like and so to have something grounded like this would provide the stability hmm. but there's like the irony that the counseling field mimics the individual like workings of a nervous system that needs a co-regulator to like be open to that idea, mm -hmm. which is where like interpersonal neurobiology and their integrative work between fields is so powerful and so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I can feel the desire of the field as a whole to find footing that provides legitimacy that I think because of the age that we are, we have not lived in a time and in a space where our field as a whole was questioned as being legitimate at all because we've kind of culturally moved beyond that 
Um, I do think that if I had lived in a time and a space where that was called into question, I may emotionally have a much stronger need um, to stay within the safe confines of what has already been proven. And mm-hmm. so that is me sort of owning my privilege of not having to do battle with that because somebody yeah. else already did that for us. But then also feeling very passionate that we don't stay stuck there. <laughs> I think the more like provocative question to me is that at this point, 2022 mm-hmm. now in the research, um, we know that coherence therapy works. Yes. Better than just about any other quote-unquote evidence-based therapy. So what are we doing? Why are we doing anything other than that? Right. And why is why is coherence therapy, which is the therapeutic model that explicitly utilizes memory consolidation frameworks, why is that not incorporated into every modality in some way? And why is it not taught in graduate education programs That's for therapists? That's the more provocative question to me. Yeah, because because I think I think that therapists when they encounter this, they their whole body resonates with a yes, mm-hmm. right? And then they do go on and get trained in the modalities that um, use it either explicitly or implicitly. Right. You know, things like EMDR and AT. Like, yeah. yeah, there there's a lot now, and so many of them are wonderful in their specific application of this theory. But most of us have to wait until after our technical, you know, professional education mm-hmm. to even be exposed to this as a concept and as a theory. And that's the part of it that I, you know, that I think we all feel very passionate about trying to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, SIP, our theoretical framework, does explicitly utilize memory reconsolidation. And we personally vouch for uh, a lot of the therapies that actually use mm-hmm. um, memory reconsolidation. So we are biased in our treatment of this article, but <clears throat> this is our podcast. So that, yeah. that's true. We're we can to say what biased. we want. Yeah. yeah. So with that very long preamble, I feel like we should tell the people what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> we for sure should just like start talking about <laughs> but it. We need to tell them what it is yeah. now. <laughs> well, it's to me like the way to get there is through the history. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Amen. So, in 1989, the after much research into yeah. the brain, uh, neuroscience neuroscientists had essentially con- concluded that there's a consolidation process that happens in the brain, specifically with emotional memory, and again, this, these secondary learned processes, that there is a consolidation process in which, like, memory is kind of integrated and consolidated the different parts of a memory are kind of brought together and held. And then neurobiologically, there's a process of consolidation in which it's boom, it's solidified. Unerasable. Unerasable. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea was that this is a one way street. Once it's consolidated, then it is just, it is in your brain. They use the word locked. Yes. Locked. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's yeah. Concrete. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's there. Yes. So then, for the lifetime of the individual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Done deal. Yep. And so then the hope was through a process of what they're terming as ext- extinction mm-hmm. that you could create a new consolidated learning network. An alternative. Yeah. yeah. That competes enough with this consolidated old learning yeah. network that it would over override, quote unquote, which is just like the brain over prioritizing 
or not over, but prioritizing this new learning so that the old would be quote unquote extinct only in yeah. behavioral expression. And that the hope there is then that by that alternative choosing that symptom reduction would take place and the behavioral change would ultimately result. Yeah. 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 So the extinction, and, and this is, we were talking about how this word is tricky because extinction implies that something is gone, mm-hmm. but in yeah, it's this, extinct. yeah. In this early understanding of consolidation, really extinction was, can I get this behavioral symptoms to be gone yeah. by providing a new learning network to you, not replacing or changing the old network, but just giving you a new one that overrides this old learned memory network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's no extinction of the memory. No. Just a prioritization of a new memory. Well, and this is language that's not used in this um, article, but to me it's helpful to understand it through the process of conditioning. Mm-hmm. Like you're simply just conditioning a new response. Mm-hmm. Um and by that, you're providing the space by which your body can actually be open to a newly consolidated uh, activation sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you condition um, into a new behavioral pattern, you can then have the opportunity to choose that, quote unquote, uh, in in response to old stimuli. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then... In between 1997 and 2000, 2000. neuroscientists said, hold up, wait, wait a, a minute. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and literally they list like 13 different like, <laughs> no, citations I love the, for the that. beefy citation yeah. portion. Um, <laughs> but essentially what emerged was the idea of reconsolidation in which you can activate targeted emotional learnings and shift it from its locked neutral state into an unlocked deconsolidated mm-hmm. labial plastic state. So yeah. we're, we're like getting into following the decade of the brain in the nineties. Neuroplasticity becomes right. this like explosive concept. Yeah. Burgeoning field of study. Yes. Everybody's looking into it. Yes. And decade then of the brain. Yep. And then out of that comes, okay, I can take an emotional learning that is subcortical that is deep, held deep within the brain and through an an activation of that circuit there is a destabilization and so it's it becomes deconsolidated mm-hmm. open for new influences mm-hmm. temporarily temporarily yeah. but here's the trick through further studies they realize that it's not just the activation that alone can't alone do it. can't shift the state need a new of that memory network so then what they learned was you have to pair activation with a mismatched experience. So in doing that, you're shifting the memory network into a deconsolidated state, reintegrating this new um, experience. And then what happens is there's a closure. Uh, a relocking. Yeah, a relocking through long-term poten- potentiation. Yep. If you're those classic uh, neuropsych nerds. Come on. And it then becomes a reconsolidated memory network that is qualitatively different. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is not just another network that's prioritized more. We're not talking about, yeah. This is not extinction. Yes. This is reconsolidation. Yeah. Amen. 
And they, it's, I mean, it just is so fascinating to me that they were able to identify the length of time, the mm-hmm. window um, of time where it is unlocked and able to be altered, uh, being five hours, like mm-hmm. that precise. And that is so relevant for so many things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because you're bringing in time. I want to talk about this like hot take that we've had, um, which actually for me comes from a friend as well. Um, so shout out friend, you'd probably know who you are, but you can literally change the past. <laughs> so using memory reconsolidation theory and, and they, is this and, another friend besides me? Yes. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> this is like, this is a triangulation of amazing. concepts that is coming into being. I say this to my clients. Yes. All the yeah. Time. Yeah. And we've said it all the time. And then this other friend that I have like lo- has said this, but using none of the concepts we have. Oh, okay. But cool. just in their own like nice. field. Okay. So then this is the difference between episodic memory and affective memory in that episodically you can't change the past, but in changing your affective experience of this episodic memory, so what affective experience is tethered to what has happened in the past, it changes the past because the past comes, you only know the past because you're in the present. Right? Yes. So you all, can only know the past by the present. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So all of the past comes into the present moment. And so if I have a deconsolidated and reconsolidated network according to an episodic memory experience in my past, then I am literally changing the past. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which you are. is like a crazy thought. But it's like, you know, you get clients who say like, well, what's the point of talking about you this? You can't change I the can't past. I can't change it. Yes. Like I can't do anything about it. It happened. Yeah. What's the point? That like pure cognitive mm-hmm. interpretation is like, you're totally right. Episodically, like what happened, happened. But like, what would it be like if you qualitatively felt the world differently in relation to that memory? like what if you could like think of that memory and not be activated that's right to me this is and i'm so fascinated to hear your guys's take on how you get into this because i feel like these words are very important Mm -hmm. like the words we're using Mm -hmm. the way i get into it is by talking about but we can organize it differently like that to me is what i found to be the most like compelling of we cannot change it episodically like it is what it is. But the way we organize that experience and thus make meaning of it in the now, mm-hmm. that can change. And so the pieces of it, we can reorganize, thus mm. changing it qualitatively, just as you've said. Yeah. 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 I I feel like the, the ways to get into that are, are far like reaching. Like I have many mm-hmm. ways. I think one of my favorites has been like the idea that you back into, which is a rabbinic teaching, you back into the future. Mm. Yeah. So you expect what's in the future based on what you're looking at, which is the past. Mm -hmm. And there's like a whole bunch of neuroscience there. But then the idea of when we walk back into the past, what if I took the chair and it, it will still be a chair, but then I was able to move it wherever I wanted it Mm. to be. So then when I'm looking into the future, I don't see it as that 
as a thing it used to be, but as a thing that I have changed. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then you expect the future differently. If I encounter another chair like that, then I have like the awareness, the ability to change it because I've already done that. Mm -hmm. And that, that just feels right to me. And doing that like experientially in a room yeah. is super cool. But yeah, I also, oh, sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think I tend to lean pretty heavily on the science, but also tracking the client's um, commitment to that belief yeah. of we can't change the past and exploring the the hopefulness but also the fear of but what if we could yeah. <laughs> mm. um the fear yeah because there is a lot of fear there of if i can then do i have to you know to use your phrase bridger reorganize my way of understanding myself and the world and other people and the answer to that is yes mm -hmm. and how yes. In one moment, that is both, you know, the most exciting thing in the world and then absolutely terrifying to our like mammalian self. Utterly because, daunting. Yeah. Like and and the the long road to get there. People anticipate the the hardship of that road to get there. And yet, um, and the vast majority of the time if somebody finds themselves in therapy, they are saying yes to that little spark of hope in them that there, there is actually a possibility of that. Yeah. And so if we can find that little spark and then, you know, pile on the, the fuel of the science that says, Oh no, we really can do this. Mm. Um, that's when, you know, people kind of open up to it. And I personally use a lot of self-disclosure there yeah, uh, because that is super relevant. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like relational language Mm -hmm. is like really easy like um my if i'm just sitting in a room alone talking about something to myself but then bridger you walk in mm -hmm. like that fundamentally changes the, the way i think about the thing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so then like if we go if we in, encounter the past in the present moment and i'm with you then it's different mm -hmm. but then your brain doesn't remember if memory reconsolidation happens your brain networks then don't remember the first time. It remembers the time you thought of it with me. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then like... Which the, that is the hope. Yeah. yeah. The relationship, mm -hmm. like two things. Relationships change the world. Mm -hmm. Like, So then like in talking about memory consolidation and changing the past that way is, well, yeah. But back then you didn't have someone who said, own that rage. Yeah. Like go there. Mm -hmm. and That's if, loud. Yeah, yeah. If I do that, then... Your brain will literally go there, yeah, and then you'll remember things differently. The past yeah. will be different. And I think in that also, this is bringing to mind like the markers of change that are identified yeah. mm -hmm. in the article. Like uh, one, one of the ways that neuroscientists kind of classify this uh, erasure as having taken place is identifying these three kind of distinct uh, markers: non-reactivation, symptom cessation, and effortless permanence. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, like that is so. Again, I'm coming back to this, like, why don't we teach this in grad school? Just like mm -hmm. we're kind of like just grieving yes. <laughs> together in this moment yes. of what if we could just set that as our uh, kind of circling back to considering uh, moving on from this experience that we've had together. Like we'll know that we're ready to consider a new topic or that maybe we're ready for this relationship to change in character. Mm -hmm. by these things are we experiencing non-reactivation 
Are we experiencing symptom cessation? Are we experiencing effortless permanence? If somebody had told me early in grad school, this is how you know, yeah, right, that this is what to look for, that would have felt like, you know, uh, a lovely wall to back my spine up against. Right. Yeah. Like that, it would have felt so tremendously supportive. It would have also felt a little daunting, like, mm-hmm. oh my God, you can actually do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's something that, at least at this point in my career, and I need to own that, feels so profoundly simple and yes. straightforward about this way of working as well. Now, there's tremendous complexity in like the barriers that we can run up against when we're attempting to do this. Yeah. But the what are we actually attempting to do and what are the essential ingredients, that part does not feel like this huge mysterious thing of like, okay, what is it going to take for my client to actually get relief? At this point, we know that. What will it take for them to really engage with it mm-hmm. and open up to it? That can get a little bit more complex, but the the essential ingredients of it, no. Yeah. And, and that's tremendous yeah yeah like the complexity is immense Mm -hmm. but the simplicity of the loop Mm -hmm. reconsolidate evaluate if there is not this cessation effortlessness yes um and i forget the third but um Mm -hmm. then what that tells us is there's another emotional learning that needs Mm -hmm. to be targeted Mm -hmm. yeah and then reactivated i was just yeah i was just on a uh consultation call uh, for EMDR certification where we were talking about um, closure and reevaluation. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that stood out from the participants was, how do you know when to move on from closure? Mm-hmm. And, and what are you actually moving into with reevaluation? Mm-hmm. And if this was at the foundation, right. that, that would not feel we're not just looking so. at yeah. you know low SUD or zero SUD and high VOC that we're actually paying attention to the larger network that we're working in mm-hmm. and how that is then um, attached in its both linked and differentiation uh, to the person's understanding of themselves as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at that cessation of symptoms, non-reactivation, and effortless permanence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling drawn to go through that transformation sequence in a little bit more detail, but I'm also aware that maybe we want to do that on a different episode. I so, think we should do it on a different episode. Okay. Yeah. So I do, but I want to highlight that we are going to do that because there's going to be a lot of curiosity about no, like wait you're a talking second. about like the steps of memory <laughs> consolidation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the, you know, what exactly are you guys talking about in terms of the step one, step two, step three, because we're talking about it in its simplicity. And so I want to acknowledge like we are going to do that yeah. and, and speak in depth about um, what are those essential ingredients how do we achieve those in therapy what are the barriers that we can encounter in the attempt to do that etc like that is coming yeah and i think maybe even i do feel like we could at least like name what they are yeah yeah, yeah. um but just it essentially utilizing memory reconsolidation in psychotherapy looks like reactivating mm-hmm. uh, or re-evoking that target knowledge mm-hmm. um of whatever we're actually working in so if this is like a traumatic experience mm-hmm. or a Uh, emotional learning that seems to be at the root of some of our behavioral uh, symptoms and our relationship dissatisfaction or dysregulation. Yeah. Yeah, They, they actually start with symptom, symptom identification. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's a symptom. And I love like the idea that the symptom is not the thing you work on. Right. I love that so much too. That actually the symptom is just an expression of, or the subjective limit to 
and emotional learning. Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. there's like, there's this limit to this learned way of being and what's coming is a symptom. So yeah. if we identify the symptom, then we can start to identify the target memory, the right. learning. And then activate that. And then yeah. activate it. It must be activated. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then identify the mismatch. So that's, yeah. I, I love like the two-handed interweave. On, yes. Yeah. I I went to the exact same place. Yeah. Was to me, it's just yeah. like a really powerful visual place by which we can hold the initial experience in one hand, activating it, feeling it. I like really enhance it with visualization mm-hmm. of like, what if it was like doing something to your hand as it sat there? What would mm-hmm. it be doing? Mm-hmm. And I get this imagery of like, it's like corroding it right. or it's like right. going up my arm as it as it starts mm-hmm. to eat away like that's mm-hmm. how it feels mm-hmm. and then in the other hand we have this mismatched experience right. which can be a resource or anything but yeah well and so going back to that you know the importance of understanding that this is about emotional learning and making sure that you know we're not distracted or confused by the logical story that we sometimes hear about the symptoms that memory reconsolidation really highlights how essential it is that we um, are aware of the emotional learning that created it. Yeah. And so just as a, an example, because I like examples, I was having a conversation with my partner who is, um, attempting to quit smoking. Mm. And so I asked the question because I'm me, uh, when do you think that you're, you know, you started smoking and that it really like drew you in? Like, when did it hook you? And the answer was very fast. He said, Oh, I was 15 and I had three best friends and we would all hang out and we called ourselves the ruffians. (laughs) This is just super sweet. The ruffians. And, uh, we all smoked. Mm. And, uh, so I asked myself. That's a complex emotional learning. Oh, I know. I know. And so I, I was reading this article, like as I'm having this conversation, which is what instigated the conversation. And so I asked, I said, so what about that whole thing? Do you feel like was the most emotionally intense part for you? Mm. He was like, well, I guess that like we wanted to rebel. And I'm like watching him say this. I'm like, that was not it. Not even close. Yeah. I'm like, And so I asked again, I said, um, so when you think about being the ruffians with those three best friends, what did that feel like to you? And oh my God, the smile on his face and the way his body responded to it. And he was like, it was just, you know, it was just like, there was no words. It was just mm. pure affect as he's remembering. Just like stumbling over oh, himself. Like, yes. Like what it, I know, like, like what it felt like to him to feel that sense of um, belonging. And finally, after kind of stumbling around for a little bit, he landed on the word camaraderie. And whoosh, there was this big affect in his body. And I'm like, well, that's clearly what we would target if we were going to do EMDR on your smoking. <laughs> but that that's the difference of like, well, yeah, okay. So logically, maybe it was about rebellion. But the emotional learning of it was that that activity was connected to this deep feeling of camaraderie and belonging mm. and brotherhood, et cetera, at 15 years old, which is like, you know, the most important thing that you're doing at that time in your life. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that just like perfectly highlighted um, what emotional learning is all about. It's this intense and deeply affective, important experience to us that we never forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like that you're alluding to like the vitality or aliveness behind a- affect mm-hmm. because these emotional learnings have an affective reason yes. why they came to be. And uh, the writers, when they talk about mismatched experiences, 
they talk about requiring it to be alive. Mm-hmm. You have to find a real alive mismatched, like um, disconfirming experience. Yeah. And so like in thinking about like, you know, you could have, you could go from, and this is like the importance of the pendulating experience between like activating, reactivating the old emotional learning and then like pairing it with like a disconfirming experience that like pendulation between the two, like back and forth. Like if I go from the live affective emotional learning of like my past Mm -hmm. to a dead, like just pure cognitive thought of like, well, I know in the world there are people who smoke, who don't smoke and are friends. Well, right. So like, but that doesn't have the uh, feeling of camaraderie. Yeah. My, my, my thought goes to, um, stern Mm -hmm. and the idea of vitality affects and micro expressions of like to find and like as therapist you know when you hit the emotional learning by Mm. the vitality affects that present themselves Mm. like that can't be inhibited Mm -hmm. in the body so spontaneous Mm -hmm. yes but then also finding the disconfirming experience that does the same thing yes Uh, which can be tricky well okay yes and i thank you so much for saying that because the writers talk about experiences and experiential kind of therapies. Mm-hmm. But for us at Beyond, and this is where like we just did an SIP training, and I feel like we get this experience a lot. I use myself, mm-hmm. my subjectivity in the room yes. as a disconfirming experience Absolutely. all the time. Yes. 100%. And I think people are like, ooh, I don't know if I like that. Yeah, cringy. Like, and, and even yeah even like the <laughs> authors of the article are like every example they give of finding the mismatch or the disconfirming knowledge they're talking about in the person's experience in the past mm-hmm. outside of the therapeutic room right. right and and that can work totally but like the power that i've personally experienced in like using my own vitality and subjective mm. presence yes. in the room Mm-hmm. provides a sort of proto-conversation disconfirming experience. Yeah. Like sub-symbolically, I'm not using language. I, it's how I am. I just did like perhaps one of my most intimate experiences in psychotherapy using exactly what you're talking about last night, um, where this client um, in their story, just so similar in so many ways to my own, but our responses to that were... Uh, sort of just inverted Hmm. we chose very different Mm -hmm. strategies that got us into very different places theirs was over preoccupation with the feelings of others and this um i'm going to uh busy myself in my worry over people and and wondering why things are the way that they Mm -hmm. are and mine especially early in life was i'm just not going to need you that's how this is going to go. Like I'll mm-hmm. still be people pleasing and I'll still like try to make sure I anticipate the needs of others, but ultimately I'm not going to count on you to be there for me yeah, ever. And that was the, just like we just shared that together, like just recognizing yeah. that we could be together and talk about this in a way that was relationally uh, contingent. Like it's here and now with you and me. Mm-hmm. And that just putting that into words in their report of what that session was like for them, that was one of the most impactful experiences that they've ever had. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. able to say what it was and what they feel in a world of strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. So beautiful. Mm. Well, and in the article, they talk about um, the complexity of creating mismatched experience. And I think potentially part of the hurdle is, is that the research up to this point, at least in the way that they talked about it, um, because they create the emotional learning in the lab, they have everything that they need in order to create that mismatched experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the research has not uh, looked as much um, at the, the complexities of finding mismatched experiences in a therapeutic relationship and encounter well after the fact of the creation of the emotional learning. So this is, at least based on this article, a little bit of a gap in research. Mm. Um, but I think that there's a lot of current modalities that are demonstrating ways of doing this very effectively. Um, but the, the research quite isn't there as far as really, really nuancing exactly what is it that we're doing in therapy to create that mismatched experience. Um, and I think that over the course of the series, we'll probably explore that a lot. Yeah. Cause it yeah. is now, yeah. um, the, you know, even Ecker mm -hmm. and, uh, Ticket, the two seminal authors of this this article, um, have been uh, involved in that. various yeah. meta-analyses and yeah. actually doing research on their own model of mm -hmm. coherence therapy and looking at why it is that things work and that things don't mm -hmm. work. Yeah. And what to do when it doesn't work yep. in yeah. a really straightforward way. <laughs> and that's what we're getting into in this yes. in this series or this yeah. micro Yeah. And what, what you're saying, Melissa, like is how like neuroscience then gets into the therapy room mm -hmm. where it's the article actually uses disconfirming knowledge mm -hmm. in it's more like neuroscientific beginning yeah mm -hmm. and it's not until they start talking about a case example that they start using disconfirming experience right and i think that's where like us as therapists are saying like yeah like knowledge is great if you've experienced it before right and yeah. if if i can neurobiologically like get two previously experienced networks to, to like pair. integrate and yeah. pair with each other. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. But what if these people don't have the disconfirming knowledge that is alive to them? Right. Well, they are alive in this room. Right. And so then can we jump into relational experiences mm -hmm. yeah. in the here and now mm -hmm. to provide the disconfirming experience and like that be the power right. of right. reconsolidation? Right. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that to me, the next article that we're going to get into is another from Ecker on memory reconsolidation, understood and misunderstood. And then what will kind of end our like very fixed attention on memory reconsolidation is with an article um, that is looking at how memory reconsolidation actually enhances psychotherapeutic efficacy. Mm -hmm. Because what really the point of this podcast is, uh, is to kind of beg the question of what does it mean to be evidence-based mm -hmm. as a therapist? Mm -hmm. um, some will say that has a definitive quantitative um, pillar, that it is the stamp that you will look for. That's what determines an EBT. Others will say, which is us, that that's a social construct yes. and that really we need to be talking about multiple ways of knowing, mm -hmm. multiple ways of making meaning. And looking at then what does our experience of human beings say might be evidence-based, mm -hmm. quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. Because when we start talking about re memory reconsolidation, we are confronting the entire field of evidence-based research, saying, I, you know, here's a mirror. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So this is going to launch us into another section on looking at what evidence-based psychotherapy actually is Mm -hmm. and how difficult it is to determine that. And then should we even be standardizing EBT efforts? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, why not? Why not? Go for it. Why not? (laughs) Doesn't feel daunting at all, Bridger. Why not? (laughs) The articles are all there. Yeah. Strung together. The research is here. We're good. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll read so you don't have to. That's right. There it is. Boom. You're going to want to, though. Or also, yeah, seriously, do read this article, though. It It is clear. It is precise writing and... Um, the, like I said earlier, the language is just really good and evocative. It is enjoyable and a good, precise read. So, yeah. And infinitely like exploratory. Yes. Like you can, we haven't even talked about the reality that when you reconsolidate a network, you are integrating it into, uh, firing patterns in the brain. Mm-hmm. So you can get a whole range of affective experience after the reconsolidation, like grief, rage, yes. um, lust, all of those different like seeking, like you can get this world of affective experience that have never been allowed because the emotional learning has yeah. been inhibited. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so then as a therapist to attune to the like aftershock of reconsolidation, mm-hmm. but then also how that, that alone not attuning to the aftershocks can inhibit the emotional learning because you may still be in that window. Mm -hmm. And then you get like the collapse into the old stories back into the old stories. Yeah. And I think that to me, just summarizing again, like the three components of reactivate mismatch and then erase or revise through new learning, that Mm -hmm. reconsolidative process that that really is, if you're experiencing effectiveness in therapy, this is why. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's just it is simple present even if you're not conscious yeah. of it. Yeah, like yeah. this, if change is happening, this is yes. why. Yep. Period. That's such a crazy and like anxiety relieving statement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it provides such a lovely point of reflection of you know think about um, clients that you've worked with or sessions that you've had where you could feel in your body that that was effective, right? Like Mm -hmm. we just did something that mattered and then evidence bore that out. You saw a significant change in, uh, your client's presentation that was effortless and spontaneous. Whatever you did there, you experienced memory reconsolidation. And so, um, sometimes, you know, focusing first on just reflecting on how it's already happening and what my, uh, already experiences yeah. can teach me about this is uh, more useful than trying to move into something new and, and impose a new way of thinking and learning uh, on top of what we're already doing yeah. because it is there. I love the thinking and learning. And to me, that idea is like it experience. Mm-hmm. That's really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And this is where I love the article so much in, in going into what is clear is that the new learning must feel decisively real. Yes. to the person based yes. on their own living experience. Yeah, it must yeah. be experiential and not intellectual. Yes, yes. and it, it must embody uh, truly what it is to have an emergent mind. Mm-hmm. Like that the mind in its narrativizing of the lived experience of the cells must be connected mm-hmm. <laughs> to what it is we're trying to do in the room. Yeah, We have to have a way of actually engaging the whole being Um, And that's what this article and others that we'll go on to read more about. But they're talking about these uh, therapies that are doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy, coherence therapy, EMDR, EFT, 
all of these different uh, IP and B informed psychotherapies that are engaging mm-hmm. the embodied mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that's just so exciting to it me. Is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I love the emphasis on the real, like mm-hmm. what's alive, what's real. Decisively yeah. real. Mm-hmm. Because I know when I end a session dead or alive, mm. like I know when it like feels like, oh, like there's something missing. Yeah. Or, when you just like, even if it doesn't end like cognitively in a good place, but you're like, ooh, I like, I know we both felt alive. Yeah. yeah. And like yeah. that, I trust the brain's natural mechanisms to take that. Right. Well, and I love that language of locked or unlocked. Yeah. Mm. Right. That moment when the system unlocks. Yeah. Oh my God. Like mm-hmm. that, I feel like I can even sense that viscerally in my body. Oh, yeah. When yeah. the memory network unlocks and opens up and suddenly you're dealing with a, a vulnerability, a tremendous amount of vulnerability, but also, um, potential, like so much potential in that moment. And that feels like, you know, the sacred ground that we get to walk on with our clients on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, that, that unlocking in session is so palpable most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, any, yeah, I feel like good. Yeah, yeah. any final thoughts before we wrap this one up i really do encourage you guys to read this yeah, one this it's is so open good. access too yeah, you can yeah. search it's so, so good again uh primer on memory reconsolidation and its psychotherapeutic use as a core process mm-hmm. of profound change and it's by ecker e-c-k-e-r mm-hmm. at all yep, mm-hmm. yep. there's a research it. gate version there's like a google scholar and on coherencetherapy.org mm-hmm. coherencetherapy.org yeah yep. and you i love that it. he's super free with his research which i think is a good and thing. i love that too because yeah because he says this is not any one therapy this is yep. a like, human here's, reality yeah here's my way of doing it but i don't lay claim to it yep. yes yeah there's a lot of reconsolidation isn't mine mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. human anyway go read guys it's worth it We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Andrea-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear.
If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community, while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things Beyond Healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas and we hope to see you there soon.